Well, today we're going to be back in Luke chapter 13. We'll be picking up in verse 10 of that chapter. We began chapter 13 last week. Uh, And today I want to share with you a message that I've titled, When Emmanuel Exceeds Our Expectations. Emmanuel simply being a term which the Bible gives us, meaning God with us. God with us being none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Emmanuel exceeding expectations in the passage that we see here today as we find Jesus actually healing a woman who's been suffering with a particular malady for a number of years. But he also teaches through a couple of parables about the kingdom that he has come to establish as this messianic king and all the implications of that kingdom. But as we kind of get our minds oriented, I want to share with you a story. I heard about a duck hunter who was out on his first hunting trip with a a new dog that he had purchased, a new duck hunting dog. And this bird dog was there with him as he shot, and he actually downed a duck. And so he dispatched his dog out onto the lake where the dog was to fetch the duck. But to his astonishment... This dog didn't swim to get the duck. No, instead the dog walked on top of the water and scooped up the bird and then walked back across the water again over to the hunter. Well, as you might imagine, this hunter was pretty shocked at what he had seen. He couldn't wait to tell somebody about it, but but as he thought a little bit about how he was going to convey that message, he knew he was going to have a hard time convincing his hunting buddies that his dog could walk on the water. So he decided that he would show one of them rather than telling him about it. Now this friend that he wanted to show was a true pessimist. But the hunter felt sure that if his friend could only see what this dog was doing and walking on the water in person, then he'd have to admit that this dog was really something special. And so the hunter invited his friend to go out for a hunt on on a day that was soon after that and And as they were there waiting by the shore of the lake, a flock of ducks flew by. They fired, and a duck fell. And sure enough, the dog responded as he jumped onto the water and walked right across the water to retrieve the bird and coming back with nothing but his paws getting wet in the whole experience. Well, the friend saw everything, but he didn't say a single word. So as they're on the drive home, the hunter spoke to his friend, and he said, asked that friend, he said, did you notice anything special about my new dog? And that friend said, I sure did. That dog can't swim. <laughs> now, there are certain individuals, and there are plethora among us, who simply will not allow their expectations to be exceeded. They do not expect to be surprised, and no matter how wonderful some event that they witness may be, they refuse to be delighted in it. And if other people do something that's above and beyond that all the delight individuals who are in this sort of category, they find some way to show how the, the experience was less than stellar. Someone surprises them with a meal, for example, and they say, you know, the beans were hard. Or the potatoes needed a little bit more salt. Or someone drops by to help them with the yard work. And and they say, well, now I've got clippings all in my pine mulch. Thanks for that. 
And they're, they're just unappreciative in these sorts of contexts because for some individuals, either they're so settled into their routines or their outlook on life in general is so dismal that it seems impossible nearly to exceed their expectations. Well, Jesus has come to this earth as an expectation exceeding Messiah. Most of the Jewish people of his day were anticipating a Savior who would work in conjunction with their religious leaders, the synagogue rulers, the Pharisees, the scribes, those who were ruling in Judaism in their day, in order to bring about an immediate liberation from the Roman Empire. But Jesus, when he came, exceeded those expectations because he did so much more than just that. He came offering eternal life and forgiveness of sin that only he as God in the flesh could offer. But some individuals that Jesus encountered were just so caught up with their own problems or with their own traditions that they missed the significance of Jesus' coming. There was no room for Jesus to exceed their expectations. And that's why as Jesus neared the end of his sermon to the crowds that he was preaching as we've been through this series recently in Luke chapter 12. Jesus criticized the people for being able to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky and being prepared for the storms that are coming in a physical sense while they were simultaneously not willing or able to analyze the significance of his coming and his ministry among them. If they had only granted a little bit of room for Emmanuel, that is God with us, if they had only allowed for a little bit of room for him to exceed their expectations, then they would have been overwhelmed with joy to see the great miracles that he had performed among them and to receive this gift of salvation that he freely offered to them. And in today's passage, the Bible presents this contrast for us between those who have room for Jesus to exceed their expectations and those who do not. It's a contrast between those who have a relentless hope and those who ultimately think that they have it all figured out. And so they're therefore unwilling to consider how God might have plans to do something that is beyond what they had imagined, what they had planned, what they had expected but this passage doesn't just have relevancy for the jews back in jesus's day it has relevancy for our day here as well because our god is still in the business of exceeding expectations and there's a certain sort of mentality that we must guard ourselves against just because things may seem bleak just because we may not have seen the response that we've prayed for in the past, just because we may think we have a handle on how God is working, we must not shut out hope that God is about to do something more amazing than we've ever experienced or imagined. And in Luke chapter 13, we're going to see this lesson exemplified in the lives of two individuals in particular. They both gathered together at the synagogue, the place of instruction on the Sabbath day, to listen to Jesus' instruction as he taught the word of God to the people of God. 
One of them is this seemingly insignificant, suffering woman who has enough room for her expectations to be exceeded such that she responds when Jesus the Master calls her forward. The other individual we're going to encounter is this leader of the synagogue who ultimately allowed the rituals of a dead religion to prevent his expectations from being exceeded as Jesus performed a miracle before his very eyes. So join me now in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10. If you're able, I'd ask that you'd stand and we might honor the reading of God's word as we open it together. Luke 13, starting in verse 10, and he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So here we have an account that appears only here in Luke's gospel. It's not recording in in the gospels of Matthew or Mark or John. And it's an account of a woman who was healed who was in this physical sort of state where she was bent double. And in spite of her prolonged suffering with this condition that we'll talk a little bit more about here in a moment, this woman had room for Jesus to exceed her expectations. Because in spite of her suffering, she put herself in a place to hear the master's teaching. And when he called her forward, this woman responded. And as we look at the example of her healing and the circumstances of the parable, that the two parables that Jesus gives surrounding that, I want to bring this down to the level of all of us by asking you this particular question. 
Is there room in your life for Jesus to exceed your expectations? I mean, let's just be honest with ourselves. Is there room in your life for Jesus to exceed your expectations? And I want to walk you through five questions that are illustrated in this passage that will help you to examine that overarching question about your willingness and your availability and the room that you allow in your life for Jesus to exceed your expectations. The first is this. Are you still looking up even when your circumstances are bleak? Luke begins this account in verse 10 by showing us that Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. That's something that we've seen him doing on multiple occasions in Luke's gospel. But it's interesting to note here that this is the final instance of Jesus teaching in the synagogues of Jerusalem, of Judea, uh, that is recorded in Luke's gospel. Because soon the animosity will grow to such an extent that he will no longer find these invitations as the nation turns against him. But to this point, we've seen Jesus doing this on multiple occasions. He's gathering in the synagogues. The synagogues were not the place where sacrifices were offered. The synagogues were places of instruction. They ultimately flowed out of the time in which the nation of Israel was in exile. The temple had been destroyed, and so the people needed places to get together and worship. So much like our churches in our day and age now, Synagogues were kind of dotted across the map and individuals would go to the local synagogue where there was a board of elders that would oversee the teaching of the word. They would invite guests like Jesus to speak the word of God. And so they're here in the synagogue, in the place where they go for instruction and the day is a Sabbath. That is, it's a Saturday. It's the day that the Lord had commanded his people, the nation of Israel, to set aside as a day of rest in honor of his coming day of rest that would ultimately be the fulfillment of that shadow as we'll see in a few moments. And the New American Standard Bible doesn't translate it, but there's a Greek word at the start of verse 11 that draws our attention to this one particular woman who's gathered in the synagogue on this day. And if you have a King James Bible, you'll probably see that word translated as something like behold, Because ultimately, what what Luke is doing is he's using a literary term which draws our attention to this one woman. He's drawing our attention to what is about to happen and what is about to happen centers around this woman. More precisely, it's a woman whose circumstances are pretty bleak. For as Luke describes this woman... She is a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double. Now, the word translated into this English phrase, bent double, was a word used in the medical realm to describe a curvature of the spine. And we could imagine Luke using a term like that. Luke, the beloved physician of Paul, the one who God used, inspired to write and record this gospel, was one who was in the medical realm. And so... Luke uses the medical term. He describes this curvature of the spine. And this woman had spinal issues, which literally forced her to live in a posture of humility. Her face was always toward the ground. She could not physically straighten up. The best she could do was to kind of tilt sideways and to peer up, looking at other individuals like a, 
an, an animal that had been injured. Her face was always toward the ground. Spurgeon wrote about this woman. She walked about as if she were searching for a grave. And at times she probably wished she could find one. For as with so many others that we've encountered in Luke's gospel, this woman was sure to be a social outcast. There was something that was visibly wrong with her. And we see from the response of the leader of this synagogue that those who were of any good status in this society had little respect for her. They would rather honor the traditions of their day than see her healed and thriving in that healing. She was an outcast. As so often we've seen in in Luke's gospel, outcasts are the ones that Jesus has come for. And and if you've got others who are setting you aside and saying, you seem like you are worth nothing, then friends, I want you to know that Jesus sees you as something because he came for the outcasts. And that's the hope that Luke so richly presents for us over and over again in his gospel. To that, you could add the fact that in general, in the day in which Jesus came in his first coming, women were treated as though they were second-class citizens. When they gathered together in the synagogue, for example, there was a section for the women and children where they were to set aside from the men. They were practically shunned in public places. If you remember, when Jesus met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, his disciples were amazed that he was openly speaking with a woman in public yes this woman's circumstances were bleak we aren't told her age we're only told how long she'd been suffering with this miserable condition year after year after year for 18 years now we know that at one point she had been well because when she's healed by jesus we're told that she was made erect again in verse 13 For her to be made erect again, she had to have been upright at some point before that. And so, this woman is older than 18 years old. This is not a condition she's suffered since birth. We aren't told her exact age, but she has been suffering for a long time. Now, most people probably looked at this woman and just assumed that she had a physical problem. But Jesus knew better than that. Jesus knew that her sickness was caused as a result of Satan's influence. As so many things in our world are caused by. Now we're not told that she was possessed by a demon. But verse 11 does indicate that she had a sickness caused by a spirit. Later Jesus will refer to her as this woman who has been bound by Satan. And apparently at some point an evil spirit had wreaked havoc on this woman's life and she had not yet recovered from that experience now in light of last week's passage we know that certainly not all and perhaps not many physical illnesses are caused by sin or by evil spirits but clearly some also are and an individual doesn't have to be possessed by an evil spirit in order to be tortured by one to have one wreaking havoc on his or her life in fact even for believers while demons cannot possess us they can inflict various bits of of malady in our own lives in various ways even the apostle paul for example attributed the thorn in his flesh 
to a messenger of Satan that was sent to him by God to keep him humble. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So this woman had some very bleak circumstances, and yet, in spite of her bleak circumstances, what we find is that her spiritual focus is upward. She was still looking up to God. She was still seeking his face. She had not checked out of pursuing him. And I wonder how many times over those 18 years this poor woman must have prayed for healing. I wonder how many others had prayed for her. Surely those prayers might have started strong, but over time they had grown dim as she and others came to expect that this was just going to be her lot for the remainder of her life. And just think of the many excuses that this woman could have come up with that everybody would have said, I understand what you're saying, no problems there, if she wanted to stay away from the gathering of those who were coming together to hear the Lord's teaching. Her youthful beauty was now disfigured by a hunched back. So she was probably self-conscious about how she looked when she went into the public places like the synagogue. She probably experienced constant pain, which would have distracted her from gathering in a, in a teaching sort of service like this. It would have been difficult for her to walk the distance that was needed to get to the synagogue. She couldn't even look up front to see what was going on because she was doubled over with her spinal injury in spite of these and so many other potential excuses this woman could have used we find that she was there to worship God and to hear the teaching of Jesus and I I just gotta wonder for all of us like what, what would your testimony be like if you had a struggle like that If you'd been crippled for 18 years, I wonder if you would be faithful to worship God week after week in the synagogue. I hope that I would. But in spite of their bleak circumstances, this woman had not grown bitter or resentful. Because she knew that in spite of her circumstances, God had not ceased to be good. God had not ceased to be loving. God had not ceased to offer a hope that was greater than the spinal condition, greater than the financial condition, greater than the social condition that she must have found herself in as a result of this malady. And you can mark this down, my friends. Suffering will come into your life. God never promises a path of pillows and flowers on the Christian's way to eternity. We all suffer on this cursed earth. We all get sick. We all stumble. We all struggle. But God uses those circumstances to cause us to rely on his coming new creation where all of these things will be banished. They will be no more. So I ask you, are you facing bleak circumstances in your life? Look up. For God is faithful and his promises will not fail you are you still looking up even when your circumstances are bleak that's the first question to ask if you want to know if there's still room in your life for Jesus to exceed your expectations here's the second do you realize that you are hopeless and helpless to solve some problems on your own 
Luke shows just how bleak this woman's circumstances had become with the final phrase at the verse 11, where he indicates that this woman could not straighten up at all. The word that's translated straighten up here means to lift or to raise oneself up, to bend up or to stand upright. It was impossible for this woman to raise herself up. She was stuck in a position where she could not extend her back upwards. And you know, this woman is going to teach us some real spiritual lessons. Because whether your spine is curved or not, the reality that all of us face is common to man. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all fallen from God's grace. And though we may try and try and go to church and put on a clean act and do our best to steer clear of sin, none of us can straighten ourselves up. We're hopeless to solve some problems on our own. And there are many circumstances in life where we find ourselves at the end of our means still wanting for someone to make a difference. But the clearest example of that in the Bible is the debt of sin that stands against us as those who have sinned against a holy God. And that, my friends, is a debt that you cannot pay on your own. You cannot straighten up at all, not by your own power. Not through your own wit or wisdom. Not using your own means. If that problem is going to be addressed in your life, someone else is going to have to make the difference. And I'm here today to preach to you the good news that someone else has come to make that difference. And his name is Jesus. He is none other than the Son of God himself. The second person of the Trinity reaching out to solve for you and me the problem that we could not solve on our own. For Jesus came as the sinless one who suffered the sinner's punishment so that sinners like you and me can go free. We can be set straight. We can be liberated by his work. And so I ask you, my friends, are you caught up in the struggle of problems that you can't solve? Are you trying and trying and finding that every time you come up bankrupt in your own means? Do you realize that the debt of sin against you is so high and that that you long for a cure that doesn't rely on your repeatedly failing efforts? Then lift up your head, my friends, because Christ has come to help you with your greatest need. Christ has come to bring you a cure Christ has come to offer you hope and a future and a release from the struggles that you struggle against in your own sufficiency. And just like this woman in today's passage, even though you can't straighten up at all, there's still hope for you. Do you realize that you're helpless to solve problems on your own? That's the second question to ask if you want to know if there's still room in your life for Jesus to exceed your expectations, here's the third. Do you believe that Jesus cares about your problems? Perhaps this woman thought that no one cared. I mean, the synagogue leader that we encounter in this passage certainly seemed to care less about whether she was healed so long as his Sabbath day track record was kept and wasn't threatened. 
And I mentioned to you how women in this day sat apart from the men. They were out of sight. They were out of mind. But this doubled over woman did not escape the sight of our master. So as she made her way into the synagogue, she caught the eye of Jesus. For in verse 12, we read, When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your sickness. And just as he did so many other places in Scripture, Jesus elevated the status of women as he called this woman there to the forefront of the synagogue. As, as he, God in the flesh, there with only a limited time of ministry on the earth, carved out a section of time that was just for this woman so that she could find healing. He brought those who society said were supposed to be out of sight and out of mind front and center, and he showed everyone that God's eye of love and compassion is on them as his fellow image bearers. And friends, hear me on this. Even when nobody else seems to have compassion, Jesus has compassion. Even when nobody else cares about your problems, you can be sure that Jesus cares. He cries out, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, that's what the Sabbath was all about to begin with. God rested on the seventh day of creation, not because God had to take a rest. He's the all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent individual. He needed no rest. But he wanted to teach us as mankind what was important for us. And so he rested. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And this woman found the essence of what the Sabbath was all about on this one particular Sabbath day. She found rest. She found relief. She found hope in the midst of her hopelessness. And you can too. God can and certainly often does bring healing to those who seek him out. But you should know this. Not everyone will find that physical healing. But everyone will find a good and compassionate God who wisely knows how to guide them in their suffering if they will seek his face. And you know, if there's any man or any woman in any gathering of people more in need than any other, then I dare say that man or woman who has the greatest need is the one that Jesus is after. Jesus came to help the needy. He came to help those with problems. He still avails himself through prayer and through his body, the church, to help those who are suffering. That's true here today. And so perhaps like this woman, you've been coming to church for years in some sort of spiritually bent over condition. Perhaps people around you have been ignoring your need or they've been helpless to do anything about it. But Jesus sees you and he wants the power of his word to touch you and to heal your soul today the power that jesus offers transforms you when you make real contact with the living lord that's what happened with this woman jesus saw her and he called her over 
And she heard his call and she responded. She came to him. That's a powerful picture of faith. Jesus has extended the call. Behold, he stands at the door and he knocks. And if anyone will hear his voice and open the door, he will come in and dine with that one, we read in Revelation 3.20. God's word says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The invitation has been extended, my friends, through Jesus. He calls for you to come to him. And you know, we've been in the midst of a really tough section of teaching from Jesus. As through his own lips there in Luke chapter 12, he's spoken over and over again of this coming time (coughs) of judgment. Jesus talks about judgment, and in so doing, he shows us the real state of who we are and how we stand before God apart from him. And that's tough teaching. He showed us that apart from God, we're in horrible shape. But it's important for us to see in this passage here that even as Jesus is teaching us about the the terrible plight that we are in on our own, Jesus is on a mission of mercy and grace to provide the help that we need in the midst of that terrible situation. He tells us the reality of the way things are, but he doesn't leave us wondering if he delights in the way things are or if he wants us to fall under his judgment. His mercy and his compassion are in abundant supply. He cares about your problems. He wants to give you a hope that drowns those out. And so will you, old sinner, come to Jesus? Will you receive his grace and his mercy? Will you be saved? Will you answer his invitation to healing for the greatest ailment of all? Do you believe that Jesus cares about your problems? That's the third question to ask if you really want to know if there's still room in your life for Jesus to exceed your expectations. Here's the fourth. Do you believe that Jesus has the power to fix your problems? All the compassion in the world won't make the difference if Jesus doesn't have the power to fix our problems. And this woman stepped out in faith, and as she did so, she found a powerful Savior. Not only did Jesus declare in verse 12 that she was freed from her sickness, in verse 13 we read that he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. For 18 years, a single evil spirit had a deathly grip on this woman. He must have thought that she would never get free. He must have thought that his power was so great she would never escape. But on this day, that evil spirit met his maker. Because there's not a single evil spirit that can stand against the Lord Jesus. And when he comes into personal contact with individuals, he brings healing. Even now, if you are apart from him, he wants to save you and he wants to send the Holy Spirit into your life to touch you and to bring healing and to guide you into the life that God wants you to live. And though this woman had been bound by that evil spirit, she was untied 
like a present that the Lord had been waiting for for 18 years to open. And as she found relief, you know what she did? She glorified God. I mean, that word translated glorified here means to praise or to honor or to magnify. This woman was making much of the name of Jesus. She was making much of the name of the God who had sent him. Because God had done wonderful things in her life. I mean, really, if if that sort of experience had been your own experience, would you not expect that in that moment you too would be praising God? You'd be glorifying Him. But you know, I think a lot of Christians who have been released from something even greater in light of what Jesus has been teaching here in these verses, they do just that. They go about their lives as though nothing has changed. I mean, can you imagine this woman just stepping out and going about her life as though nothing had changed after 18 years? Can you imagine her not glorifying God and just going about life as she always had? It would be hard for us to fathom, but I think a lot of Christians do that very sort of thing. We've been released from something even greater than a physical malady. We've been released from the bondage to sin. We've been released from Satan's power. We've been released over death's hold over us because Jesus, through his conquering of the grave, has said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? My friends, we've received so much in Christ. And yet so many Christians go about their lives as though nothing has changed. They offer up no life of praise. You won't find them glorifying God. They just go about life as it was before. They may come to a worship service, sure. But don't you dare ask me to sing, they'll say. I'm just going to sit here with my arms crossed. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to be there in that synagogue on that day to see Christ in a very physical way, setting this woman free, and then being a part of the worship service that started right then as she began to glorify God. And I don't know about you guys, but man, I want to be in a worship service like that. And I really think the only thing that's missing from our average gathering of worship together is that we don't always get it through our thick heads what Christ has done for us. And so let us be people who follow the model of this woman that Jesus has set free. Let us be people who offer up a life of glorifying the God who has redeemed us, the God who promises to us for ages to come that we shall be in His presence, enjoying His favor forevermore. Isn't that something to celebrate? Can you glorify God over that? I hope you can. Because we have much in our Savior to glorify Him about. So praise Him. Lift His name high. Make much of our God for the grace that He has shown to us in Christ. You see, this woman had probably been to religious services all of her life, but on this day, she didn't just go to a religious service She had a personal contact with the living Lord. And you can too. Will you give your heart to Jesus? Will you let him fix your problems? Do you believe that Jesus has the power to fix your problems? 
That's the fourth question to ask if you want to know if there's still room for Jesus to exceed the expectations of your life. Here's the final one. Are your expectations keeping you from enjoying God's best? This synagogue leader whom we encounter in Luke chapter 13, the one who's leading the very place where Jesus has performed this miracle, I mean, you would think he would be so happy. God has chosen to come into my place that that God's given me an opportunity to lead in, and and God has here enacted a work that that no one can explain apart from the fact that he has made the difference. I, I mean, you would think he would be excited about that, but instead what we read is that this one was actually indignant because of what Jesus had done in healing on the Sabbath. That's what we read in verse 14. And so he begins to bark out to the crowd. I mean, he's got an issue with Jesus, but he's not taking his issue up with Jesus. He begins to speak to the crowd. And so he says in verse 14, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. He's giving Jesus an indirect sort of lecture about when things ought to happen in a healing sort of sense. And he begins to bark out at the crowd. You know, I took a little break from my studies yesterday to take a walk with my family down the road. And and as we walked, we came to a plot on the corner of the road where there were some dogs who were just standing there kind of happily looking at us. And those dogs we noticed as we got closer, had shock collars on them. So, you know, they were peaceful. They didn't come out. Uh, they, di- they didn't get close. My daughter, kind of out of fear for our little pathetic dog, picked him up, little schnauzer. She picked him up as we got close. But, but I, something slipped in her mind where she decided she was just going to set him down for a moment. Well, she sat him down in the plot of land over by the road right in front of those dogs. And those dogs, which had been so happy and peaceful, they were all over trying to get to that dog now thankfully the fence kept them back and they didn't come any farther than that but you know as i thought about that i thought that's what this leader of the synagogue seems to be doing here in this passage he's been happy to invite jesus in he's been excited about the teaching and the extra uproar you know the the attendance boost that having the the Jesus, who's been causing all these miracles to happen. He's he's been happy about that happening in the place where he's been called to be a chief among the synagogue. But all of a sudden, when Jesus does something that exceeds his expectation, when Jesus steps into his turf and does something that he was not expecting, he bows up like like a big old dog and just starts barking about what Christ has done there in the midst of this assembly. You know, I think a lot of times Christians can do that. I mean, we say, sure, we'd love to have individuals come here. We want to see a church grow. Man, we want to see the glory of God resounding. But then God starts to change people's lives. He starts to put people with different gifts than us in place. And sometimes Christians can get this sort of mentality that starts to bark, starts to bite, starts to say, you're you're encroaching on my territory. My, My friends, I hope... We have the sort of attitude that says we serve one God, one Savior. We've got one King reigning over us all. And so let's rejoice when he does something wonderful 
in the lives of others because his glory being magnified in others is his glory being magnified. And that's what we're all about. This man had expectations which were keeping him from enjoying God's best. He knew the history of the Sabbath, and and if you were to look at the history of the Sabbath, you'll find that when Israel came out of its time of exile, they came out with Pharisees who began to put together this oral tradition of law that individuals ultimately began to hold in higher esteem than what God himself had revealed in Holy Scripture. And so the traditions of man kind of piled up and individuals became so enthralled in these traditions that they couldn't even allow God to do an amazing thing on this day because it violated their traditions. And Jesus was constantly healing individuals on the Sabbath. Ultimately, he would ask them, we've even seen this a couple of times already in Luke's gospel, he would ask them, the Pharisees and the scribes, he would ask him, is it lawful to heal an individual on the Sabbath? And they refused to answer. They were remaining silent. But Jesus was trying to teach them that he was the fulfillment of those Sabbaths. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so Jesus denounced those who ultimately tied up heavy burdens and laid them on men's shoulders, being unwilling to move them with as much of a finger as themselves. And and the chief of the synagogues was among their number. He's so caught up in his traditions. He's so caught up in the way he expects things to go that when Jesus does something that's beyond that, He's just thrown into a tizzy. He's indignant. He's he's violently angry in these moments at Jesus himself. And so Jesus ultimately challenged those who were legalists when it came to the Sabbath about enforcing their traditions that were beyond God's command. We saw that back in Luke chapter 4 as he drove out a demon in the synagogue on the Sabbath before he went to Simon's mother-in-law's home and, and healed her on the Sabbath. Luke chapter 6, we see a man who had a, a, a withered hand. We talked about how that man was called in the synagogue to come forward and be healed. Jesus asking that question, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? And obviously, the people of Jesus' day knew that there was an opportunity to do good on the Sabbath. In fact, he draws the analogy here of going and helping your animals. As this one says, there's six days, come and be healed on a day that's not a Sabbath day. The Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, that is, you individuals who are doing something other than what you're saying, you you false believers, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead them away to water him. That is like if, you're, if your animal needs, needs water, needs like the sustenance of life on the Sabbath day, do you not go and take care of that? And he draws the analogy, says, And this woman, the daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? 
I mean, it makes perfect sense to us, right? If you're going to give your animal water, why not give the woman who's been bound up by Satan freedom on the day of the Sabbath? But they were so caught up in their traditions that the synagogue official couldn't see what God was doing. And so he ignored God's hand at work in favor of his own traditions. His expectations of how God was going to work were keeping him from enjoying God's best. Even though God had performed a miracle there before his very eyes. So instead of joining the chorus of praise in this own synagogue, this man became indignant at the Lord whom the Sabbath was created to point to. And friends, we should always honor God over our own man-made rules. And that synagogue ruler, he spoke to the crowds when he was indignant. He spoke, ultimately, giving his lecture to Jesus through the people. Warren Wearsby had this to say about this man. He said, the bondage of the ruler on this, of this synagogue was worse than that of the woman. Her bondage affected only her body. But his bondage shackled his mind and his heart. He was so bound and blinded by tradition that he ended up opposing the Son of God. And there's a danger here for all of us that we would get so caught up in our traditions, we'd get so caught up in our expectations that we would leave no room for God to work in ways beyond what we could expect. Unfortunately, it's a common sort of religious mistake for individuals dotted throughout our churches to identify their own personal goodness with their ability to keep a list of rituals and rules of things that they think ought to be done. It happens all the time. People from healthy spiritual sorts of backgrounds form spiritual habits such as going to church, reading their Bibles, giving their tithes, praying on a regular schedule. Those are good things to do. But they start to see themselves, some individuals do, as morally good people because they're doing these spiritually good things. And friends, if you haven't given your life to the perfect Jesus, then none of those things is going to change the fact that your righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. Now, doing these things certainly has some benefit in terms of cultivating a a greater relationship with the Lord. But if your confidence in your goodness is based on anything other than the fact that Christ has saved you from the wretch that you once were, then you are failing in self-righteous pride. And the fundamental question we must ask is this. How is my heart toward God? How is my heart toward my fellow men? Because ultimately my heart toward God is going to be reflected in my heart toward my fellow man. If my heart is bound up with enmity, with bitterness, with unresolved grudges, or with pride, then any combination of the outward religious things I might do will only deepen my status as a hypocrite, as Jesus says in these words to the synagogue official jesus taught us that our care for our fellow man should always override our concern for our traditions and he had compassion and his compassion caused him to move to meet a greater need and so should we then jesus gives us two parables here at the end of this passage that are very brief parables but they illustrate for us the divine kingdom and how the divine kingdom is going to exceed the expectations of anyone who lived in Jesus' day. The first example that's given is the parable 
of the mustard seed. Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, which in other gospels is referred to as the smallest of all seeds. Luke leaves that detail out, but his readers would have known that a mustard seed was a very small seed. And then the seed is thrown by man into his garden, and it ultimately rises to become this great tree which other birds of the air are able to come and nest in. Now that's an important sort of thing for Jesus' followers to hear because in the midst of this conflict, you've got Jesus who is one man, obviously God in the flesh, but not everyone knew that, but there were disciples who were coming to him and as they see it, there's one man against the entirety of this religious system known as Judaism. I mean, you've got the ruler of the synagogue, you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, you've got the priests, all of whom Jesus is setting himself against because of their self-righteous attitudes. And you can imagine being a follower of Jesus and thinking, okay, we're really taking on the world here. I mean, it really feels like we're just a little mustard seed compared to all of this system that we're putting ourselves against. And they needed to know that God was going to move in ways that would exceed their expectations. Because God was going to do just as a mustard seed did. God was going to cause this kingdom to branch out in such ways that birds of the air, which are often used actually as, a, as an analogy of the nations of the earth, according to the commentator Leon Morris. Passages like Ezekiel 17, 23, 31, 6, uh, Ezekiel 31, 6, Daniel 4, 12. Birds of the air are often a symbol of the nations of the earth. This kingdom that Jesus is showing through this parable of the mustard seed is going to be a universal kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom where you don't have to worry about those self-righteous ones holding you down. You don't have to worry about those who may be gathered in the assembly and who scoff at you when you walk the aisle to give your life to Christ. Because ultimately there's a kingdom greater than those individuals. There is a kingdom in which all the birds of the nations, all the birds of the air, that all the individuals from all nations were able to come and roost in because that kingdom is one that God has called all men to himself through. And so Jesus exceeds the expectations of this kingdom by showing how it's like a mustard seed and showing in particular how this kingdom will grow to include all peoples but also in the, there's, there's a final parable that he shares here where Jesus shows that he will exceed expectations of kingdom growth beyond what we can perceive even beyond what we could see beyond what we might be able to to obtain in some sort of poll that we might take because in the second parable Jesus likens the kingdom to yeast that's put into a lump of dough that works itself through the dough in a way that is unseen he, he says, what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour. Three pecks of flour would be enough flour to feed about 100 individuals. We're talking about 50 pounds of flour, all right? And just one little, one little piece of leaven. Leaven was this yeast-infused piece of dough. Before an individual would throw the bread into the oven, they would, they would just break a piece of it off. It had already been impacted by the yeast. And they would set that aside and they would save it for the next time. They would soak it in water for the next time that they were preparing bread. But this yeast, this this has such an attribute that once you place it into a, a, a larger piece that does not yet have yeast in it, that yeast will 
will ferment. It will, it will spread. It will cause the entire lump of that dough to be impacted. And that's what causes the bread to rise. As carbon dioxide is put off in this fermentation sort of process. But Jesus is showing there that ultimately while we can't see the impacts of what's happening in the kingdom, that kingdom will still exceed our expectations. And so friend, as we kind of draw this together, that the simple question that we all need to address, the simple question we all need to ask is, is there still room for God to exceed your expectations in Christ? Or are we so caught in the rituals of what we're doing? Are we so caught up in our expectations of how God is going to work? Are are we so expectant of things to keep going the way they've always been going that we will not allow for God to do a mighty work in our midst? Or if he's doing a mighty work in our midst, we won't get on board with that. Because ultimately, that's what I think this passage is drawing us to consider. And maybe you're here today, and maybe you're in a situation in your life where you've found yourself in the midst of despair. You found yourself in the midst of something that are really bleak circumstances. You found yourself in some struggle that you know you don't have the power to overcome. Maybe that's a physical, real-life sort of struggle. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a spiritual sort of struggle where you acknowledge, you know that you, you are a sinner. You know that, that all the efforts, all the lists you've been trying to check off are not going to be enough. Friend, I want to tell you, Christ is able to save. Christ is willing to save. Is there room in your life for Christ to exceed your expectations? I would say, friend, come to him because he is a loving and a forgiving and a life-giving Savior. So as we close in these final moments for prayer, I want you to be considering in your own heart. I want you to be offering up your own heart to say, Lord, have I sold you short in terms of exceeding expectations? Or is there really room in my life for you to exceed my expectations? And if there is room, am I willing to step out in faith, pursuing your will, pursuing your word, such that I would see these things happening in my life through a Savior who is so prone to exceed our expectations. Would you, would you consider that as we bow in a few final moments of prayer? Pray with me, if you will. God, we thank you that when we are weak, when we are powerless, when we were at enmity with no way to save ourselves, that you, O oh Lord, show yourself compassionate. You show yourself forgiving and merciful you show yourself powerful we think of the power which which ultimately conquered death the power which conquered the grave God I just praise you for your power I praise you for how you exceed expectations and God I, I know that sometimes we are prone to go about the routine sometimes we're prone to just check out sometimes we're prone oh Lord just to, to feel like Things have been this way for a while and they're going to be this way for a while to come. But God, I just pray that you shatter those expectations to help us to know 
that you are still glorious, that you are still powerful, that you can still work miracles. And God, I pray you do that through your people stepping out in obedience to your word, pursuing, oh Lord, what you've called us to do. Do these things we pray, oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.